welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host for this evening, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest. This this is my guest. Michael Lilienthal, that's me. I was waiting for you to say my name. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know. Sometimes we, like, say the name and then sometimes we pause pregnantly and it's like, which is which, when is what... You know, I feel like professional, like good Who podcast. Is when is when is where forever? And... What is what is what is it? Um, I was gonna say I feel like professional podcast hosts would like sort of nail it down beforehand. Like, how are we doing this? What are we doing? But Michael and I prefer to go in. It would avoid a lot of awkwardness, but yeah, Michael and I prefer to go in what the kids call half cocked, um, <laughs> and. Uh, just mm-hmm. kind of feel feel it out, feel each other out, uh, feel each other, you know, that kind of thing. We embrace uh, <clears throat> embrace the awkwardness. We embrace something anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is a family podcast where we're going to talk about what... Is it? Well, I was going to say, it's one <laughs> where we're going to talk about what... Uh, not Marion the Librarian, the other librarian in The Music Man... Uh, included on her list of dirty books, I believe. The that list was uh, of... one of the one of the old ladies. Yes, yes. You know, the pick a little, talk a little. Was it was it a cheap pick ladies. a little, talk a little lady, or were the librarians? Separate? Yeah. No, yeah. Marion, I think, is the only like librarian that gets any. Oh, were they time? Man, it's been a long time since I saw the Music Man. I guess I should have. Uh... I uh, should have boned up before making that reference. Well, the whole point of that whole song that you're you're referencing is that like reading books is a waste of time and will not let you get a husband. I mean, I know that, but like I thought it was the other librarians that were propagating that, which does seem like a conflict of interest somehow. Right. But, right. Um anyway, I know that like Rabelais. Yeah. It's Rabelais, Balzac, Balzac. Is it Flaubert? Do I ever really remember? There's the third one. Might be. Might be Flaubert. Flaubert yeah, would, Flaubert would make sense, but it doesn't feel like he fits the meter. Um, yeah. Anyway, what we're doing today... Diderot! I don't know. <laughs> that would also make sense, but I feel like it's too deep a cut for the music man. Um, we will talk about Balzac Lawrence on this... Stern! <laughs> I was going to say we will talk about Balzac on this podcast one day just to complete the music man okay. trifecta. Um, yes, we need to round that out. Ooh, something that both Balzac and Rabelais talked a lot about. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's been a long time since I had to slap the explicit tag on any of our episodes, but uh, see, it and may I was come gonna up. say that like this book in particular might merit it. <laughs> yeah, just discussing know. this book like in an intellectually honest manner. Period. <laughs> um getting anywhere beyond just the bare bones summary even that honestly (laughs) even that uh yeah okay so uh that said um we're not officially talking about gargantuan panagruel by francois rabelais yet Mm -hmm. this is not the first of our four uh mongo book episodes regarding that work um what this is is sort of a context episode uh for uh Rabelais and his world. 
Um, that's a very clever reference that if you got, you probably don't have to listen to the rest of this episode. And if you <laughs> didn't get, you will get by the end of this episode. So stay tuned in order to feel very clever. Um, stay tuned, gentle listener. Uh, oh my gosh, don't like tempt me into the world where we do like a like a role play as 30s radio announcers um i know that like role plays before manga books are kind of traditional in this one in that we did like our lost episode of of a uh, regarding don quixote, don quixote. um mm-hmm. an episode about which uh super fan nathaniel ryan <laughs> said how bad did you two lose that you had to record this episode <laughs> which is possibly the most deeply hurtful thing uh Nat has, has said um uh, and that includes some other pretty deeply hurtful things that i think i've probably described on this podcast before anyway um yeah now michael what you said when we were talking about doing this special episode is that you thought the listener and not you but definitely the listener could use some context <laughs> for the discussion of this book, right? Definitely. Have I definitely. quoted you not more me. or less correctly? Yeah. Not me. Yeah, like not you, me though. You got it. Yeah. Um it's not for me. Sure. Yeah. I I get you. Um so right. it's for the listener, not for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you feel the need to like keep saying it over and over because like Do, am I am I saying it again? I mean, you've said it a bunch I, of times. And as you okay. know, well, just you know, it, it's it's for the listener, not me. Yeah, and like the more times you say <laughs> the exact same very specific thing, the more convincing it becomes. That's just a principle right. of good communication. So, like, yeah, 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 exactly. So we're um, on the same page. Yeah, <laughs> page. Anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, before we dive into that, and we do have a lot to cover, so I do want to dive into it relatively quickly, but. Um, before that, it is very important to know what we are both drinking. So, Michael, uh, this is a special episode, so you're not necessarily drinking scotch. What are you drinking? Uh, je bois de la belle France. C'est un vin rouge. C'est une grenache. Uh, so, yes, it's called... It's a, a red wine. <laughs> it's called. It's a grenache. It's called la belle France. Um, now, grenache, I think, just means grape smash. <laughs> Which is sort of the basic description of any wine. So I think you might have gotten sort of rooked on this uh, on this particular bottle. I'm sorry to have to break that. No, you? it's you know it, it's from the the French Hulk's winery. <laughs> <laughs> Grape smash. No, but 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 uh, yeah. but seriously, do you do you have anything else to describe about this wine? Or um, it's a pretty dry uh, red, which makes me happy. Um, sure. And I I don't know it's it's kind of a well it's from France uh, okay which I think makes sense because it's called La Belle France um, just kind of a good standard French red wine yeah um, yeah that's it I, I uh, my wife and I got it from a box uh, wine subscription thing that we did for a little while. And we've got several bottles in our basement. I was going to say, to be clear, and I know this because I can see Michael right now, he is not drinking box wine. No. Like, <laughs> box O wine bottles box o kind wine. of thing. I box think O bottles of wine. Yes. Yeah. Very good. 
Uh, excellent. Um, I, myself, uh, coincidentally enough, because Michael and I obviously never coordinate anything before we record these episodes, mm-hmm. I am drinking what is called a French Old Fashioned. Um, it is called. It is from a cocktail book that I purchased recently, and I meant to, like go upstairs before we recorded this and note the name of the cocktail book but i failed to do that um so i might if i remember i'll put that in the that the name of the book in the notes i don't know that the uh the recipe i'm using is original to this book either so maybe it doesn't matter anyway so french old-fashioned as far as i can tell what makes it french specifically is that for its sweetener, instead of using sugar or simple syrup, it uses just a little bit of green chartreuse, um, which is a French-produced, like, liqueur? I'm not sure if that's the correct noun for it. Um, green chartreuse is... It's one of these ones that... I think I've, I think I've drunk green chartreuse maybe with, like, club soda or something on this podcast before, but it's, it's mm-hmm. one of these, like medieval or renaissance era monk based recipes that has like so many botanicals and herbs and stuff and like the proper recipe for it is known to like four people who are never allowed to get on a plane together kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but it's like it's a very strong it's like 110 proof so it's very strong but it tends towards the sweet and then there's some bitters in this and a very specific um type of rye whiskey Hmm. uh and then just kind of an old-fashioned build with that i have a i have a large square ice cube that has been slowly melting and um i discovered it very recently and uh i like it quite a bit and uh yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm drinking fantastic yeah we both went the french theme (laughs) yeah yeah which again we did on purpose obviously oh yes yes we are a very well coordinated podcast we do all things deliberately and intentionally yes um all right now that said basically what i want to do in this episode is sort of what i what i'd call table setting for gargantuan panic rule Mm -hmm. and i had an internal debate slash debate with our schedule depending on how recording worked out as to whether to just do all of this stuff in like a special upfront versus like kind of scattering it like birdseed throughout our four manga book episodes. Mm. But I think it makes sense to sort of include it all because I think some of it is like context that will be obvious to some people and not at all obvious to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like you could, depending on your knowledge of this work in general or um the historical period uh you know you might be able to skip parts or indeed all of this episode like if you're a gargantuan panagruel scholar of any kind like probably skip this episode however if you are sort of a casual reader or are new to rabelais um this episode might help you not michael no, but you not me okay so uh i have for this is Perhaps literally the first time in one of these episodes, um, and by one of these episodes, I mean the six-year history of our podcast, that I have made notes. 
we will see how closely I <laughs> we stick to my notes or how many of them we get through. But there are notes. They are here. They're on one page of a of a notebook. Um, they do begin with what I thought was going to be the second set, move down to the first, and then go to the third, um, which is you know uh, par for the course. Anyway, um, so yeah. Mm. Uh, I think you're mixing your sports metaphors there. Talking about sets and I mean those are both tennis things. I don't think those relate. If you beat your opponent in the correct <laughs> amount of sets, that's sure. par. If you beat them in the in less sets, then you're like birdieing, and then if you beat them in more sp- more sets, that's love. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's it depends point. on if you're doing oh, European wait. or American tennis. Um, <laughs> Oh, sure. And then yep, in some countries, it's a touchdown. See, I don't know why people accuse us of not knowing about sports. Like, we just got, like, a hole-in-one with that. Uh, <laughs> though in Europe, that's a three-pointer. Anyway. Exactly. Um, right. Okay. So, uh, the first of three things I want to talk about is just uh, Gargantua and Panagruel, mm-hmm. just as as a thing, as an artifact, right? Um, because we, Mm -hmm. if Gargantuan Pantagruel has come up on this podcast before, it's as a possible candidate for the first novel, right? Because it's a great work of literature that's Mm -hmm. long and arguably coherent that predates Don Quixote. That's like the basic set of parameters for considering it the first novel um listeners to our directly previous episode chronologically which obviously you don't have to listen to in that order but um if you do you will have heard like some of the parameters that people have used for determining what the first novel is none of that super matters for our purposes i don't know even in four episodes of a manga book, I don't know if we'll get into whether it's the first novel. I don't know if we'll get that sort of deep into it or not. Um, yeah, well, that whole debate itself is just kind of academic. It's academic. The only reason I use and... it as a framework is that, like, it can be helpful in sort of, like, framing in the big picture sense what we're looking at um, right. in a given artifact. Okay, so... Gargantuan Pantagruel, sort of like Tristram Shandy, is a very, what, if you pick it up in a bookstore today, it's a very long book, published as much shorter books. Um, right. My cop, my translation that I'm using is about a thousand pages. Um, Michael's translation, I think, is pretty, f- fairly shorter than that. Um, 788. Yeah. Um, and... But it was published in five volumes. So even my... <laughs> Say that again, dear. What was the number you gave? 788. Mentions of farts in the book? <laughs> oh no, way more than that, for sure. Way more than that. Um, which we will actually talk about in this table setting episode. Uh... Uh, yes please <laughs> maybe not fart specifically but we'll we'll get there we probably will get there mm-hmm. anyway um so even my thousand page book 
is divided up into five smaller books that were published over the course of 12 years. So instead of thinking of reading a thousand page book, if you think of reading like five 250 page books, like that, you know, seems like much shorter chunks of a book, right? Like 250 page Mm -hmm. books are not considered that long. I would, I think mostly. Um, Right. (laughs) Now, Another thing to know is that Pantagruel is actually the first book chronologically. Pantagruel was published first, right. Gargantua was published second, and then uh, the other books are really just called the third book, the fourth book, and the fifth book. Um, or the uh, third book of Pantagruel, fourth book of Pantagruel, or third book of Gargantua, fourth book of Gargantua. Mostly short. Very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the the most important thing to keep in mind is that calling it Gargantuan Panagruel is sort of like reading um, Chronicles of Narnia, but reading the what's the the sixth book? Um, uh, the the one that goes into the creation of Narnia. Um, um ma- magician magician's nephew. Is it that one? I think. Uh, yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. I don't know why I was thinking magician's nephew didn't sound right. I, I wanted I was, a different word there. Yeah, I was thinking it too, but that you are correct. Um, so yeah, uh, there's a whole debate about, <coughs> excuse me, Narnia, and maybe this isn't super helpful. Um, other than rather right. than more confusing, but magician's nephew has to do with the creation of narnia and often mm-hmm. gets put as the first book in it's chronologically yeah chronologically first. in the world of the story it comes first but right lewis published it second to last specifically as like a pairing with the last book which is the end of narnia and it doesn't right. if you've been reading the books in order it doesn't really make sense as the first book it makes much more sense as the sixth book and similarly, like, mm-hmm. it's become tradition to publish Gargantua and Pantagruel in that order because Gargantua is Pantagruel's father. Right. And so even though Pantagruel is published first, uh, Gargantua is like a prequel. So then very helpful editors later, you know, reverse them to follow the order, the chronology of the story rather than the chronology of like the real world. Um, right. And I'm not saying this just to be pedantic. A little bit I'm saying it to be pedantic, but like, um, it does also come in as far as like themes and plot and the development of certain ideas throughout the course of the book. Um, it is actually important to know. Okay. Second mm-hmm. thing, uh, translation. Uh, this mm-hmm. book did not appear in English for about 150 years after. It was first published in French. Um, Which is wild. It is. Yeah, it is wild on a lot of levels, especially from sort of our modern perspective, where it's like if something is considered an influential work of literature, it's like almost immediately available in, you know, many different languages. But yeah. Mm -hmm. And so according to Wikipedia, um, French Gargantuan pub- 
French Gargantuan Pantagruel, published between 1532 and 1564, published in English 1693 to 1694. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the first uh, translator into English was someone named Thomas Urquhart, um, whose translation uh, Michael, I believe, is reading for this set of episodes. Um, Correct. Michael, can you remind me who the other translator credited alongside Urquhart is? Peter Matteau. Yes, thank you. So, um, as I understand, and this is all from uh, the novel A Biography, um, Urquhart, his translation was sort of a landmark, like, watershed, while also being, and I paraphrase here, more exuberant than accurate. Um, And Matteau's translation was less exuberant and but more accurate um but this and and the story i believe is that urquhart died after translating the third book and matteau Mm -hmm. was his student or something and and finished his life's work and translated the fourth and fifth book um urquhart i believe was scottish uh and this urquhart matteau translation was the only translation available in english for a long time and was very influential on the next at least centuries worth of English language literature. So even though it was like inaccurate in a lot of ways, like this version uh, was very influential. So um, if it's interesting to me too, if I can interject just a little bit, because the timeline of that um, just strikes me as oddly, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but it uh, od- oddly exclusive of a specific English author being uh, William Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, because the French would have been published before Shakespeare's time, but then the English not until after his death. Um, however, I think there are some themes, motifs, uh, almost phrases even in Urquhart's translation that reflect shakespeare scarily closely (laughs) sure which i think there might be a number of things at play uh urquhart himself in his translation could have been influenced by shakespeare and so there's that sort of reversal there um i don't also don't know how much french shakespeare would have known and maybe he had the french original (laughs) right um um from what i know about reading about shakespeare I don't think, I mean, Shakespeare is very mysterious and we've talked about that yeah. on this podcast before. So we, this to, doesn't need to be a Shakespeare special either. I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah. But like now you've, now you've done it. Uh, now you, as Shakespeare would say, cried havoc and let slip the dogs of war. Um, uh, which I also say when I'm going to the bathroom, um, whether <laughs> that aside, what's that? Only for number two. Yeah. I was going to say, whether this aside makes it into the podcast, as anybody's guess. Um, but... Seems appropriate, I think. I think yeah, for Rabelais, it does. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, anyway, um, you know, if you said, like, well, maybe Shakespeare knew French and, and could read French, like, it's hard to say no. Right. At the same time, I've seen no scholars that and, say that would say an emphatic yes to that. So, right, and I I think some of it is is just 
subtle enough that it could simply be a zeitgeist thing yes okay so i was gonna posit two other explanations one of which was the reversal that you said like urquhart Mm -hmm. urquhart knew shakespeare so in translating rabelais he knew that this you know set of references would uh communicate to his audience so he's like it's which is an interesting like reverse 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 kind of kind of thing right (laughs) um just timey-wimey wibbly-wobbly exactly uh (laughs) and then yes the other thing is like shakespeare and rabelais certainly would have been pulling from potentially very similar cultural milieus um right they themselves might not have thought that being nearly a hundred years apart and you know france and england being rivals but like in the broader scope of of history and culture like yeah they would have Mm -hmm. had a lot of very similar reference points so you know it could easily be that Mm -hmm. and it could be both you know urquhart recognizing a a thing in rabelais french that shakespeare did a slightly different way but it works yeah any any number of things like that um Mm -hmm. but you're right it's an it's a really interesting like who was influenced by shakespeare who was influenced by rabelais and who was influenced by both like all of that is right you know a lot of it probably just because of this leapfrog that's going on yeah. with them in the timeline yeah and i mean a similar thing happens like even in ancient texts versus medieval texts versus renaissance texts like um mm-hmm. the texts from plato for example that we think of as very influential had sort of oh, like yeah. a thousand to fifteen hundred year lacuna where Mm-hmm. The texts available to, especially from the fall of Rome through the Renaissance, the texts available to medieval scholars, very different and very differently influential than the texts available starting in in literally the Renaissance in, say, the 1400s and then mm-hmm. especially into the 1500s, etc. But this is also not a Plato special. Um, <laughs> something we should maybe have one day in our deeply even more deeply than many other specials we've had unqualified to do but when has that stopped us right um (laughs) right okay so i want to get those things all out there and then i did want to go into the historical context um yes so uh the first book um uh pantagruel um appears in 1534 and pantagruel is of a type of literature that existed already uh you know there's there's a lot of very similar in fact the the characters of pantagruel and gargantua i think are both extant in the literature that rabelais is like responding to and writing into um so in a sense in 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 a similar sense to like some of Shakespeare's plays are based on stories that there were many other dramatic versions of being performed in London before and after Shakespeare and during his, his lifetime. Um, Rabelais and his giant stories are also considered like top-notch versions of a genre and a set of tropes and a set of characters that are available to a lot of writers in this period. Um, Mm -hmm. Now that said, uh, Pantagruel appears in 1534, um, which is only 17 years after uh, something else, Michael. Something else that happened Hmm. very significantly in the southern part of Europe 
Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of what that might. Yeah, Michael, uh, you're you're really kind of providing some audio interference. It sounds like you're nailing oh, something. Oh. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, you know, I was having a debate later and I was nailing. Um, <laughs> I, yes, listen, Michael, if you uh, don't stop this, I'm going to put you on a diet of worms to just <laughs> excise all your humors. I don't know. Not what that means. Oh, it's uh, not? <laughs> Shoot. No. Well, back to catechism yeah, class so for the me. Start of the Reformation. Yeah. Is in fifteen seventeen. Um, so of course you know we're talking about the Protestant Reformation, and like, especially with Michael and I, we have to like treat this subject like very dangerous. You know, explosive devices in the sense if we handle it slightly wrong it will go off in our face and by go off in our face i mean be an hour and a half of this podcast um right (laughs) but suffice it to say that in western europe um Mm -hmm. the protestant reformation is probably the most significant historical event uh maybe by some scholars argument barring the invention of the printing press those two may combine to be the most significant historical event since the fall of Rome, the fall of the Western Roman Empire on one side, and until the apocalypse that World War I represents on the other side. Like, this is an epoch-making historical event. Michael, you look yes. like you have something to say? or Well, some, like, it, it, I... It... Trying to avoid this becoming an explosion. Yeah. Um... Something that, uh, like, is historically um, significant for now. It's the um, 500th anniversary of, well, in September it'll be the 500th anniversary of the publication of the New Testament in German, Mm. in Luther's translation. Um, So 1522, he translated the New Testament. Would you like to know when he translated the complete Bible for the first time? Yes. 1534. Ooh. Now, this sounds like the sort of thing you'd set up on, like, a very conspiracy theory podcast. Like, is Gargantuan <laughs> Panagruel secretly a coded explication of Luther's German Bible? You know how texts in French were often, like, coded explications of texts in German? Yeah, no, but... Right, uh, yeah, so often, yeah. No, that is very interesting and very good historical but, context. like, just to get kind of the picture of what is going on in the reformation at the time yes too yes absolutely um so uh another thing i want to mention before going into yet a third mm-hmm. thing that i believe happened in 1534 um oh boy uh i just want to mention that you know often even in like as garbage as a lot of you know american high school level history classes are a lot of you know what people know about this uh um time period uh is that there was a protestant reformation right a a break right with the catholic church um and of course luther originally did not want to uh oh uh as an aside i got the date slightly wrong um Pantagruel appears around 1532. We're not sure exactly when. Oh, it's yeah. Gargantua that appears in 1534. Very, you know, very close. Like, doesn't really undercut too much of 
um and i think those are the, the only two that are published so close together yes right the others are like the third a book decade apart ish the third book doesn't come out till 1546 um yep. and then the fourth yep. book not till 1552 the fifth book mm-hmm. close to a decade after that if it's even real and mm-hmm. that's something else we'll get to um <laughs> so uh yeah anyway um, I guess the other the other thing I was I was groping towards mentioning uh, is that Luther didn't want to break from the Catholic Church, right? Luther would have, at almost any cost, stayed Catholic. Um, he was more or less forced out through the right, you know, um, through various things that we don't necessarily have time to go into. Now that said, there were still Reformation movements within the catholic church um yes the catholics are much in this period much more known for the counter-reformation and the inquisition Mm -hmm. which were both pretty vicious and pretty like from a modern perspective Mm -hmm. pretty inarguably problematic responses to the reformation (laughs) but there were forces within the catholic church within catholic countries that were still trying to reform the church if in more moderate a way um and M.A. Screech's pretty modern translation of Rabelais is the first time in multiple books and a pre- and previously reading Urquhart and, and uh, Mateau's translation that I'd heard Rabelais called Lutheran. Uh, <laughs> and I searched it earlier, and this will come up in our actual episodes about Rabelais. Um, the word Lutheran appears, according to Google Books, at least 16 times in Screech's translation. And it's all in oh, wow. in his footnotes and his, his footnotes. introductions mm. and and so forth. Um, but when Screech uses the the adjective Lutheran, he's pretty like clearly lo- using it as an adjective to describe Lutheran sympathies or Lutheran um, ideas rather than Lutheranism, mm-hmm. as we'd call it these sure. days. Um, because Rabelais himself was still, in a lot of ways, very much a Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. Rabelais was so. I had I I'm gonna digress into my section on Rabelais quickly. Um, Rabelais sure. often in a lot of uh, stuff you'll read about him dating back a hundred years or so. Um, they talk a lot about him being a doctor, and when. Mm-hmm. Sarah said yep. her thing that we're definitely including about 788 farts. There's a lot of like yep. bodily humor, um, stuff, Anatomy. Ana- anatomical humor. Yes. Uh, a great look from <laughs> your wife. Your listener in the... will not, will not catch the look that my wife I was about to say a great look from your wife in the background when you just scl- exclaimed the word anatomy with, for her, no other context. Um, <laughs> yes, so, uh, yeah, so, so the doctoral stuff comes through very much, and, like, I don't, like, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but, like, in some ways it reminds me of, like, the Gospel of Luke, in that Luke is, yeah. you know, a physician, a physician. and, like, mm-hmm. I've noticed in my, you know, very non-academic, non-professional readings of the Gospels, like, 
if there's going to be sort of a body-based metaphor or even observation in the Gospels, it's often from Luke. Like, it often seems yes. like a physician's eye in Luke to what's going on in these in these uh, uh, accounts. Um, mm-hmm. So, according to M.A. Screech's introduction to Gargantuan Pantagruel, uh, much less well-known is the fact that Rabelais was also a lawyer. Um and this comes hmm. through very much in okay. some of the like satires and like almost extended bits that come up in some of the books. Like there are just sort of satirical Sorry, trials and scenes with like people sort of posing as lawyers. Um, like that comes up. Uh, but Rabelais was also a priest. I believe he was first ordained mm-hmm. as a priest. Um, he was inducted into one of the the monastical orders and then there was some trouble where he maybe had a child or two out of wedlock and just some stuff where he did some things that were not very sort of priestly um and got kicked out of his one order because he had very powerful patrons, he was, like, sort of repatriated into the Benedictine order. Eventually ended up as a lay priest, meaning he was allowed to be... Allowed to practice as a doctor, but um, he was still officially a member of the Benedictines, which mean he means he didn't have to be apostate, which was, like, very important for him not getting, like, mm-hmm. burned at the stake and other such things. Um, right. So that's all... Uh, very interesting. So at the same time, Rabelais had a lot of interaction with the Sorbonne. Now, Michael, are you having studied, you know, at least some of the history and also theology of this period? Are you familiar with the Sorbonne in Paris at all? A bit. Um, like, it's a university. Um I, I honestly, my my knowledge of that historically is pretty limited. Sure. From what I understand, the Sorbonne was a very important, and I'm sure I'm butchering the French pronunciation here, Sorbonne or something like that, but um, it was a very prominent university and not a super tolerant university to mm. ideas outside of very much the medieval Catholic mainstream. And, mm. um, again, Gar, uh, Pantagruel being published in 1532 was before something called the Affair of the Placards. Michael, are you familiar with this? No. Okay. This is the first I've heard that phrase. It's a very specific thing. Um, I just figured you may have encountered it in some of your studies, but, um, in the 1532 edition of, uh, Pantagruel, uh, Rabelais talks about a lot of the hypocrisies and just mm-hmm. double dealings and so forth of in the original edition uh, it, the sorry the original edition of the Sorbonites Sorbonites in later okay. editions he he uh turns that phrase into just saying sort of sophists which is sort of a classical mm-hmm. greek um phrase for like anybody who's kind of hypocritical or pretentious without substance or anything like that Mm -hmm. um and part of the reason that he did that has to do with the affair of the placards um now i have called up 
Uh, and I fully admit this is the Wikipedia article about the affair of the placards. Um, it's great. It's great for surface level research. I mean, it is, especially like the more specific that things are. Like usually it's people who actually specialize in these things have written them. And it's like no other idiots have had a chance to try to contradict right. them. So just to quote from Wikipedia, Wikipedia, the affair of the placards was an incident in which anti-Catholic posters appeared in public places in Paris and in four major provincial cities, um, eliding some stuff uh, on the night of uh, 17th to 18th October, 1534. One of the posters was posted on the, on the bedchamber door of King Fran Francis I at Amboise an affront and a breach of security that left him shaken. Like, imagine if someone had posted a subversive political, you know, tract on the president's door or something, you know, the, the U.S. president's door. Like, that would be... Uh, 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 let's go Brandon flag on Biden's door. Exactly. Um, <laughs> the Affaire de Placards, the French name for it, brought an end to the conciliatory policies of Francis, who had formerly attempted to protect the Protestants from the more extreme measures of the Parlement de Paris and also of the public entreaties for moderation of Philip Melanchthon. Um, mm. Who is another name that comes up here that I will uh, ask you about shortly, Michael. Okay. Certainly. So, again, this is 1534. The original edition right. of Pantagruel is published in 1532. In what M.A. Screech and some other scholars seem to think was like sort of a friendly environment for, you know, debate, open thought, um, uh, you know, just sort of a, a very tolerant environment mm -hmm. where people could say, hey, maybe the Pope shouldn't have absolute power. You know, thing, subversive things like that, right? Um, meanwhile, yeah. so the Affair de Placards is this political provocation that sort of, in the way that political extremes create political extremes, sort of forces the hand mm -hmm. of the French king to be like, no, nothing anti-Catholic. Everyone anti-Catholic is now under suspicion. And with Rabelais having sort of gotten at the, uh, the Sorbonneites, you know, Rabelais is now mm -hmm. under suspicion, under a potential sure. threat. So, subsequent editions of Gargantua and Pantagruel make the switch from Sorbonites to Sophists, or to just sort of much more generalized um, mm -hmm. enemies of truth and reason, rather than very specific enemies of truth and reason. Not specifically calling out anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That was... The, the Affair of the Placards was when? What year? 1534. 1534. That's interesting. Um, I wonder what effect that had, because I, I know very little about the history specifically besides a couple of dates, and that's John Calvin being the French reformer, so to speak, uh, who started his reform work really in 1536, if I remember right. Yeah, um... I actually think this uh, Wikipedia article mentions Calvin. Yes. Okay. Um, so under the heading Aftermath from this Wikipedia article, a few paragraphs uh -huh. in, um, the polemic against the Catholic Church was considered a severe insult to Catholics, and the king now publicly affirmed his Catholic faith. 
The immediate public outcry necessitated the flight of several prominent Protestant leaders, including John Calvin and of scholars and poets like Clement Marat. Um, Calvin fled at in 1534? Is that? Uh, yeah, apparently, right? or at least this. Oh, okay. Interesting. Or, or around then? Yeah, around then, the affair of the placards. The implication being the the he was in Paris or in France, maybe, and before this affair you know the the uh, right. environment was much more friendly and now it became much more hardline and forced him to flee um interesting interesting yeah hmm. so another uh um element that's going on at this time that i wanted to mention very briefly um yeah is uh, this in this period there is also a resurgence of interest in sort of gnosticism uh mystic christianity mm-hmm. sort of secret societies um you know secret societies have a lot of currency now and mm-hmm. in often idiotic and completely ahistorical ways but like <laughs> this and the next 200 to 250 years maybe up through like the french revolution um is really the heyday of mystic secret societies so there's this resurgence of interest in sort of gnosticism or gnostic interpretations of the bible Um, Uh, i mean our whole country the united states is founded on it i mean you've got the map on the back of the declaration of independence and everything wait uh nicholas cage are you on this podcast now? oh is that yeah is that Um, is that not is that not real is that i mean (laughs) Like there's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you had seriously said this whole country is founded on Gnosticism, like you wouldn't be completely wrong. But given our right, current, like there's some, <laughs> yeah, given our current cultural context for these words, I would want to be very careful in parsing everything you meant by that. Exactly. Um, because there's, no, I'm being completely facetious right now. I I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I was gonna say, if you weren't being that, like, there's some truth to it, and there's some great falsehood, and one of those things mm-hmm. is dominating the public discourse right now. Um, yeah. So, uh, anyway, like, this was the heyday of both Masonic societies, Rosicrucian societies, which, like, started as a Lutheran movement before it went very away from that, um, mm-hmm. as well as other societies many to most of which did claim that they had knowledge inherited from the ancients sometimes to the point of the ancient egyptians later this would be built out to include like the ancient atlanteans and you know goes all Mm -hmm. kinds of very weird places but like there's this going on at the same time that there's going on both like sort of a inter-catholic reformation and an intra-catholic reformation and like the three things have a lot of overlap, like the the secret societies and the Gnostics claim script, scriptural texts in a lot of ways. At the same time, they are very dis- three very distinct um, streams. Uh, I mention this specifically because there is a lot of dispute over the fifth book of Gargantuan Pantagruel. Um, sure. And there's long been scholarly debate uh that falls into one of several camps either rabelais wrote it which you know simple enough Mm. uh or rabelais did not write it and it's a fake or Mm -hmm. uh 
something somewhere in between those two like Rabelais left some notes or some of the chapters are Rabelais but others are not like someone got a hold of it and built it out um sure I personally tend to fall sort of into that third category though much more leaning towards like a lot of it is not really Rabelais like bits of it Mm. might be but um some of it might not be partly because and I don't know if this is because Screech's translation militates towards that or not but in in, at least in Screech's translation so much of it seems like uh like repetitions or variations on passages earlier in the work um Hmm. and a lot of the rest of it seems like uh, sometimes from scholars who know way more about it than i do but like imitations of other you know the pieces of literature that were current at the time um Hmm. and of course we talked about this kind of thing in talking about don quixote right there were many fake don quixotes Right. Um, Avellaneda was like only the most prominent fake. Like there were a lot of others. Right. And even with Rabelais publishing five books over the course of 25 to 35 years, like there were a lot of books in between those books that were like, you know, yeah, clearly fakes. And fakes, fakes happened all over the place. There were f- fake Luther writings mm-hmm. um, at the time of Luther too. I mean, people wrote fakes all the time. So yeah. It, could it was, be. and, um, so, like, th- this isn't, like, conclusive evidence, but, like, I'm just trying to think through the whole timeline of everything. But he, Rabelais died before the fifth book was published, Correct. right? It was published posthumously. Right. So, I mean, the f- there's at least a very strong potential that someone editorialized yes. some whatever partial thing he had anyway. Exactly. Like, um, And he died shortly after the fourth book was published because the fourth one was published 1552. He died 1553? Sounds right, yeah. I'm not... And yeah. given the, the spacing of time between the, the books, like, I can't imagine unless he had, like, just dedicated the last couple of years of his life to writing so much i can't imagine that he would have had the entire thing written right and that's by then but I, like i said it's not conclusive evidence it's just like right and it's it's one of those thoughts. things like whether love's labors won by shakespeare exists like, like we'll probably never right. have conclusive evidence for sure either way or anyway um but part of the connection i was making is that like and maybe we'll hopefully we'll get into this during our actual manga book episodes, but like the fifth book reads to me a lot more Gnostic than books one through four do. Um, which to me implies that it's some other author, maybe very close to Rabelais or very like into Rabelais, but subverting Rabelais to their own ends. Um, Mm. something like that. Uh, but again, you know, I'm, like actual Rabelais scholars are very scattered in their opinions of this. And I am far from an actual Rabelais scholar. So I'm for sure a novice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. So uh, I want to uh, just go into a little bit. I'm skipping some of the stuff that I was going to, talk about which you know happened every time i taught any kind of class during my teaching career (laughs) um i always prepare more rather than less but um i want to talk 
So a little bit of what I talked about with Rabelais and um, the Sorbonne and some of the, the uh, you know, oppression slash censorship comes from an old book called Rabelais, A Study in Comic Courage by Thomas M. Green. And Green's whole thesis in that book was basically that, like, Rabelais was using his humorous books to sort of subvert the oppressive forces of the Sorbonne. Um, mm. It was a book I read a while ago, like, shortly after I read Urquhart and, and Mateau's edition mm. several years ago. In rereading it for this, uh, bits of it, I didn't re- reread the whole thing, full disclosure, for this podcast, I definitely encountered some places where uh, Screech is much later and presumably more up-to-date scholarship does contradict Greens, so take that as you will. Hmm. Um, I also... Take that! Uh, uh, have read, again, much more in the past, a book called Francois Rabelais, A Study by Donald M. Frame. Um, the book I want to make sure to specifically mention, though, is called Rabelais and His World, which is by Mikhail Bakhtin. Mm. I first encountered Bakhtin as an undergraduate communications minor Hmm. um, because he created, I believe it was Dialogics, which is like a major revolution in the study of rhetoric. Um, But Bakhtin's, excuse me, PhD thesis was uh, the book Rabelais and His World. It was this landmark study of Rabelais. Um, Mm -hmm. And... The, you know, the thesis was written in the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain fell. So that's obviously a pretty specific um, uh, cultural milieu. I, again, I was rereading bits of it earlier today. I hadn't read it for several years before that. I have never found, like, a specific, like, Soviet bias or Marxist bias in it. But it very well could be that I was, you know, too young and... and uh, uninformed when i did read it and like i just missed that so take that as you will Mm. but multiple scholars of rabelais have told me that like if you're gonna read one book about rabelais after having read gargantua and pantagruel um rabelais and his world is the one to start with um all right so i wanted to as briefly as possible because we're really just like just like ramming our heads into our time here um i wanted to take us through the introduction to this book um and by that i mean i want to i want to quote from the first few pages and then the more we go on the more i'm going to be just like summarizing scads of pages at once sure um so the very beginning of rabelais and his world bakhtin says of all great writers of world literature rabelais is the least popular the least understood and appreciated. Hmm. Um, so very quickly within the first page of this introduction, Bakhtin quotes a uh, source. He, he identifies as the historian Michelet. Michelet says Rabelais collected wisdom from the popular elemental forces of the ancient Provençal idioms, sayings, proverbs, school farces from the mouths of fools and clowns, but refer refracted by this foolery the genius of the age and its prophetic power are revealed in all their majesty 
Hmm. Um, and Bakhtin makes great, um, you know, makes much of this prophetic idea that that Rabelais looked at all of the information and and cultural stuff, cultural expressions available to him to mm-hmm. more or less predict the future. Um, Just distilling the zeitgeist into what's going to happen next. Exactly. Uh, so Bakhtin goes on to... It's s- the second time I've used the word zeitgeist in this podcast. I mean, it's not, it's not <laughs> wrong, though, especially for this one. Uh, Bakhtin goes on to say, It is precisely this specific and radical popular character of Rabelais' images which, which explains their exceptional saturation with the future so correctly stressed by Michelet in the appreciation quoted. It also explains Rabelais' non-literary nature, that is, the non-conformity of his images to the literary norms and canons predominating in the 16th century and still prevailing in our times, whatever the changes undergone by their contents. Rabelais' non-conformity was carried to a much greater extent than that of Shakespeare or Cervantes, who merely disobeyed the narrow classical canons. Rabelais' images have a certain undestroyable non-official nature. No dogma, no authoritarianism, no narrow-minded seriousness can coexist with Rabelais' and imagery, images. These images are opposed to all that is finished and polished, to all pomposity, to every ready-made solution in the sphere of thought and world outlook. This accounts for Rabelais' peculiar isolation in the successive centuries. He cannot be approached along the wide-beaten roads followed by bourgeois Europe's literary creation and ideology during the 400 years separating him from us. So there's maybe a little Marxism in there, you know, uh, talking about the bourgeois and and so forth. But um, So uh, skipping a paragraph or so down... um, Bakhtin goes on, if Rabelais appears so isolated, so unlike any other representative of great literature of these last four centuries of history, we should reflect that this period of literary development may in turn seem unusual when viewed against the background of folk tradition. Rabelais' images are completely at home within the thousand-year-old development of popular culture. Uh, skipping a little to be understood Rabelais requires an essential reconstruction of our entire artistic and ideological perception the renunciation of many deeply rooted demands of literary taste and the revision of many concepts Um, and then he goes on to say that the the tradition Rabelais should be situated in is that of folk humor Um, so that was a lot and like you know, yeah. I'd encourage anyone who's like, what now to, you know, run those bits back. Cause like they may be some of the most like densely significant things we've uh, quoted in this podcast. <laughs> um, and I, I hope no one is going to sue us for like quoting so extensively. I would like to say this is like fair use and so forth. Um, right. Uh, Bakhtin goes on to say the manifestations of folk culture can be divided into three distinct forms ritual spectacles, comical verbal compositions, and various genres of Billingsgate. Now I'm going to go through those very briefly and backwards. So Billingsgate is essentially, I looked it up on, uh, you know, Google, not translate, but like just typed in to find Billingsgate. And it was basically like abusive or uh, hyperbolically insulting language. Um, 
I this is this is very much Ethan and his um other scholarly pursuits but like Bakhtin doesn't use this word but I compared it I I connected it in my head to flighting Michael are you familiar with flighting F L Y T I N G This is basically a thing that developed in Europe in the Middle Ages and it was basically like long strings of comic insults um the most similar thing I can compare it to now is, like, rap battles, where, like, you have these okay. improvised, like, rhyming, rhythmic, basically ways of insulting each other. Um, and it was, like... I was thinking a roast. Yeah. But yes. Uh, roast rap is... Rap battle makes sense, too. Yeah, roast is actually another good genre. It was very much like that, but it was maybe... It wasn't necessarily poetic in the, like, rhythmic rhyming way that a rap battle might be, but, like... Poetic in the sense of, like, you're building, you know, your mother was a this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not being specific in order to avoid losing in the future. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, comic verbal compositions, uh, uh, Bakhtin defines as parodies, both oral and written. So anyone who has read mm-hmm. uh, these books already knows there's, like, a lot of courtroom parodies, a lot of parodies of various like functions social functions and so forth so so, something's occurring to me now as you you discuss Bakhtin's analysis of Rabelais um it's in book three uh and we're not talking about the text of the book specifically I was going to tell you that so I'm glad you told me that um (laughs) where um Panurge has this uh colloquy basically and the the representatives that he has to discuss his issues are a theologian a physician a lawyer and a philosopher and it's occurring to me now like we already have the theologian is rabelais the physician is rabelais and you discussed how the lawyer is rabelais and now i'm seeing the philosopher is also rabelais um (laughs) and he fills all of these roles um and specifically i'm thinking about this like the uh gargantuan pantagruel would seem to be rabelais and i'm inverting the chronology here it's rabelais closing of the american mind (laughs) um and rabelais himself is alan bloom we need a ravelstein of rabelais right uh, to get a picture of who this guy is. I mean, maybe that's um, this podcast. his friend? Next quest. <laughs> We've had six years, yes. and now this is our turning point, and our next quest is who is uh, Ravelais Rabelstein? Who, who is, who is, yes, who, well, who is Rabelais Saul Bellow? Right. Um, yeah, but Rab- Rabelais Ravelstein was, like, much more satisfying to say. Uh, yeah, it's true. Rabelais, Ravelstein. Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's a question, too. If there already was a Saul Bellow to Rabelais, then there should be a Ravelstein right. of Rabelais. And I mean, I feel like and there is, is because, like... What is Rabelais, Ravelstein? Possibly Diderot was, like, Lauren Stern's Ravelstein, or Lauren Stern's Saul Bellow, and Jacques the Fatalist is his Ravelstein, you know. Like, yeah, this right. feels like, sort of like tracing the Tempest throughout history. It feels like uh, something we could yeah. sort of uh, trace through history. I don't think we have the time to do it right now, but like it definitely seems no. like something we should put a pin on our red thread connected conspiracy theory board. Yeah. Right. 
but like it j- just the way uh um Bakhtin talks about rivals r- uh, <laughs> see i'm conflating right. already rabelais sort of like um uh hold on the pulse of his time right and being able to analyze it and and digest it and produce something that was so significant as Gargantua and Pantagruel is similar in my brain to Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. Um, especially, like, in my primary encounter with that in Revelstein, right. how it's this just, like, mind-blowing, groundbreaking thing where it's not that he invented anything new, it's that he's analyzing what's already there right. and presenting it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to get to the third manifestation of folk culture that Bakhtin uh um mentions because it's one of the two things that i really want to get to before we end this sort of table setting episode um Mm -hmm. and bakhtin calls it ritual spectacles um and then he defines that as Mm -hmm. carnival pageants comic shows of the marketplace but what bakhtin gets into again this is just from the introduction this is you know uh very preliminary but when Bakhtin unpacks us, it's like maybe the most significant part of the book. Um, and I say that partly because it's like the one that I remember the most. But Bakhtin analyzes Gargantuan Panagruel as essentially a giant um, participation in, uh, even more than a portrayal of, uh, the whole culture of Carnival. Um now, Carnival still exists in the 21st century in certain traditionally Catholic countries as uh, Fat Tuesday and the uh, the season leading mm-hmm. up to Lent. Um, but in the medieval world, you know, where those traditions draw their roots back to, um, you know, the Brazilian Carnival draws its roots back through Portuguese settlers to medieval Portugal, for example. Um, right basically like carnival was a season like it was it was like a lot Mm -hmm. of days i don't know how many days and it may have varied from specific locale to locale but it was the the major thing about it was that it was a it it was a place where social hierarchies and social customs were inverted so you could make fun of the king you could make fun of the landlord you could make fun of the local lord you could make fun of anyone who was in power and the peasants the the lowest stratum of society got to do this as well as participating in like a giant feast a giant it was mm-hmm. you know bakhtin describes it as utopian um sure possibly not again without interest in sort of the the idea mm-hmm. of a marxist uh, society where the the proletariat you know creates a utopia but like he doesn't push it that far he just says this is a thing from medieval and renaissance europe that is almost completely lost to us after say the actual Mm -hmm. renaissance period um right you know it's in my mind it's associated with like the idea that like we every year we sing about the 12 days of christmas right but like so many people don't know what the 12 days of christmas are and that december 26th when we take down the tree and get back to work is day two of christmas and that you know the medieval peasants that we always sort of uh, facetiously compare ourselves to in terms of like uh at least we're not them like they got (laughs) automatically 
12 days of work off to feast and drink and sing and make, you know, do uh, uh, dramas and pageants yep. every single year. And yep. um, Carnival was like that, except it was, you know, the the pre-Lenten uh, uh, feast. So, Bakhtin... I am thinking about, like, another French novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. and, like, the... Um, I, I, is it... It's been a while since I've read that, but like that Quasimodo takes part basically in a carnival yeah. um, festival thing. And Bakhtin mentions this, and maybe I will manage to reread some or all of this book uh, by the time we actually <laughs> record for uh, Gargantuan Pantagruel. Um, Bakhtin mentions that uh, carnival traditionally was also a celebration slash a performance by um you know what we'd call now like little people or or midgets i don't know what the non-offensive oh, sure. term is as well as giants as well as again what a later mm-hmm. era would call carnival freaks like you know right. again that's not a term i feel great about saying but like i don't know another word for it um any 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 folks who were sort of grotesque or you know, again, a hunchback, and keep in mind, Mm -hmm. this is a society much before, well before modern medicine, where, like, an alchemist who accidentally discovered phosphorus because he was trying to distill gold from his pee might be, like, (laughs) the scientific authority in your community. So, like, hunchbacks and, you know, people with severe scoliosis or any number of, like, modern Mm -hmm. uh, uh, disorders of various kinds, like, wouldn't be caught, wouldn't be cured, would just grow up into what people would think of as freaks or outcasts. Um, but during Carnival, like they would, they were celebrated essentially, and like that's what right. that's what Hugo draws well, on. And that's a big in, thing for Quasimodo yeah, yes. in that novel that like he comes out and you know with the assumption that he's just ugly and becomes something. Yeah, more isn't he crowned in the? Carnival. he's crowned some kind yep, of king or something king king of the fools yeah king of like the that. fools yeah so king of the fools was a big mm-hmm. thing like they got to sort of make fun of the king like this was part of that inverted order like there mm-hmm. were the fools who the rest of the year were just the lowest stratum but you crowned a king of them to um celebrate right. carnival um and, well, and basically book just kind of adds to the tiny whiminess yeah because it was published in like the 1830s but it takes place in the 14 yes and hugo 1470s 1480s hugo was as much i mean hugo was uh, a blossom a bloom of the romantic movement and the romantic movement both right rediscovered (laughs) a lot of these cultural milieus from either before the reformation the renaissance or like just barely during the reformation the renaissance um Mm -hmm. they rediscovered rabelais like rabelais was very popular during the uh the romantic era so like that makes a lot of sense um you know the the uh uh, the romantic era was not super interested in what you'd call historical verisimilitude um but at the same time they they yes rediscovered and popularized a lot of these these streams and these ideas Mm -hmm. and so forth so like excuse me um it actually knowing that it makes a lot of sense that uh yeah you know uh that coincidence or whatever 
Um, but mm-hmm. like I say, of these three sort of folk culture streams that uh, uh, Bakhtin charts, um, if we only talk about carnival, if we only talk about ritual spectacles, like that might be enough. Um, I'm not saying that's all mm. we'll do, but I'm just saying like that's that's plenty, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So one last thing. Uh, we mentioned Melanchthon mm-hmm. earlier. This is not what I want to yes. mention. Uh, Melanchthon and Rabelais, I think Screech says, had some direct correspondence. I'll have to sort of uh, really? bone up on that before we cover the Mongo books. Um, That's because Melanchthon is known to like Michael and me and probably nat and maybe no other listener of this podcast probably mike all of our like (laughs) yeah mike would know our confessional lutheran listeners will know but like no one else could even be expected to know like this isn't even you know shade or anything but like he comes up in rabelais and that's fascinating but i'm afraid any any good historian like if you if you study the reformation you'd know him yeah but but that's it i'm afraid we're gonna have to put a pin in him which i mean he's dead the last 500 years so like whatever 450 yeah. years whatever so like he can he can take it pin. um because specifically i want to talk about erasmus because okay. um yes if ma screech is to be believed and some of my other sources mention this a, a little bit um Rabelais and study, a study in courage mentions a, a decent amount. Besides Luther, uh, one of Rabelais' mm-hmm. probably more chief, more important sources and influences is uh, Erasmus, which Michael, as I'm sure you're not at all aware, is a fascinating historical like, like spectrum between luther and erasmus to be to be sort of influenced by both what can you say what's that (laughs) i love Erasmus. okay i was gonna say what can you say about erasmus without going too far into the weeds that's interesting and at least potentially relevant to gargantuan panic rule go um he was a pretty prominent humanist which i think is significant for rabbi yeah um he did some amazing work on the greek new testament okay um in fact when luther translated the bible into greek he or into german he used erasmus's greek new testament (laughs) um and erasmus himself did a lot of uh work and travel he would go around to monasteries he so the the typical way this would work he would go to a monastery he would knock on the monastery door and a a monk would come out very drunk and um (laughs) ask what he wanted and erasmus would say any any cool old texts in in greek or or a language you can't understand and the monk would go down and be like well we wrapped a fish in this and he'd be like oh yeah that's the epistle of james um and so Erasmus collected all of these different texts and variants and things and codified all of that. And that like is so a, a lot of my particular study in in seminary and theologically tends to be towards the uh, exegetical. So looking at texts and variants and translations and such. So Erasmus did uh, a lot of pioneering in that in the Reformation. Um, but, uh, perhaps in terms of the Reformation itself, he's most 
well known for his debate with Luther, which produced Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, um, because Erasmus was tasked basically by uh, the the Pope and the Roman Church to um, shut Luther down, <laughs> and Erasmus uh, was being a humanist was like, well, I'll just I'll debate with him and. Um, you know, because like all good, all good Reformation or Renaissance humanists, he was like, well, let's have a good talk about stuff. <laughs> uh, and so uh, he wrote a treatise on the freedom of the will, um, not necessarily himself even being fully convinced about the subject, um, but choosing a topic that he knew could get at Luther. And Luther responded um, with one of his most monumental texts of all being the bondage of the will. Um, and which if, if you do a surface level study of the Reformation uh, in those terms, especially on the Lutheran side of things, it tends to cast Erasmus as a villain sure. uh, in that, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I knew some of that. I didn't know all of it, and that's why I wanted you to weigh in in this particular subject sure. <laughs> um now erasmus was not a trained theologian is that right or is that it depends on your definition of theologian okay. like he, he was a linguist humanist yeah. um had some theological training but that was not necessarily his primary so focus. he would not be like fully ordained but he had some theological no. training okay right um right. yeah i was i was gonna what i was gonna say is that just like uh you know uh later slander of his character or something like that um do you know mm -hmm. anything about his erasmus's um adages or um what's the other word that's like adage um <laughs> sayings sayings um that's not the one i'm looking for like oscar wilde did a lot of them um uh... it's on the tip of my brain Hmm. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Well, you should have more to drink, and it will loosen that chunk and cause it to fall out and spill out of your mouth. Uh, I'm trying to channel Rabelais. I was going to say, that sounds very both Rabelais, Erasmus, and Luther. <laughs> Proverbs isn't the word for uh, it. Um, I googled Erasmus adage, and that actually does produce... Uh, oh, okay. Uh, it worked. Let's see. Yeah, there's a an Amazon page called the Adages of Erasmus, an Amazon like yeah. entry rather. Um, proverbs, adages. Ah, there's a there's another very similar word that I'm trying to look for, like is a maxims. Maxims. That's Afer aphorisms. Yeah. That's the one. Thank you. I, 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 I googled adage synonym. Yeah, that would have been smarter. <laughs> I just googled Oscar Wilde because like Oscar Wilde is known for his, his aphorisms and I hoped that would get me there. Um, See, there's a podcast idea in here somewhere. <laughs> just the most roundabout way to google something. Um, yes, anyway. Aphorisms is the word <laughs> I was looking for, but do you know of sure. any works by Rasmus? either adages or aphorisms is that anything for you i'm sure i would but i'm not thinking of okay any particularly right uh now. just because in the ma screech translation his footnotes 
often reference added i i wanted to say it was aphorisms but maybe it's adages of erasmus <laughs> maybe you were right all along i mean it's one or the other uh just basically these like erasmus published these collections of like sayings or very compacted mm-hmm. wisdom and like a lot of his influence on uh gargantuan panagruel had to do with like rabelais just kind of quoting him sort of you know in the way that you quote something that you expect your reader to already have some reference for like if we just said to be or not mm-hmm. to be without you know right citing hamlet or whatever um sure yeah so hmm. that's uh yeah that's that's all i know about that uh i wasn't sure how well known that was um Mm -mm. now michael i think we've managed to get in most of what my notes were about this certainly like huzzah uh, an adequate amount based on reasonableness of expectation and uh amount of time also the bell the period bell is ringing right now exactly yeah go to my next class so uh i just hope you don't get like mind controlled by vecna or something um thank you for that you're welcome (laughs) if you see a grandfather clock just run but like you know i thought my wife's decorating was a little yeah okay run towards me and towards me singing oh you remember when you had me sing like whatever that stupid opera was that you knew i wouldn't be able to sing at all and then you had me do it anyway as a punishment run towards that sound because like no evil entity from dimensions beyond is ever going to be able to replicate that (laughs) good yeah so i know what's real i know where the positive things are well positive is might be an overstatement but at least the real Anyway. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. I'm <laughs> glad you did. <laughs> uh, gentle listener, thank you for listening. Um, the next time uh, this podcast comes out, we will be doing actual text reading of Gargantua and Pantagruel by Francois Rabelais. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael will be using the Thomas Urquhart uh, Peter Mateau uh, translation. I will be using the mm-hmm. the M A Screech translation. I strongly suspect almost any translation into English will, you know, be fine, be good. Um, Michael's had some reference to the Burton Raffel translation that was sort of between the two. I want to say, and I think th- I think that gets used in a lot of college or grad school classes. It's probably very good. Um, anyway, whatever translation you use, feel free to read along send us your feedback um you can do that in the contact section of tapesterradio.org uh put scotch talk in the subject line uh i'm not looking at the script so i don't know what to do next michael where can they find you uh, i'm on twitter at m-g-l-i-l-i-e-n-t-h-a-l i'm also on dmsguild.org or com i think it's org uh, if you look for Michael Lilienthal, Michael G. Lilienthal, you'll find some uh, Dungeons and Dragons adventures that I've written. Nice. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Uh, there are, uh, I think, 
as of this recording, there are three available, and they are all listed as pay what you want, and what you want can be zero dollars, and I'm telling you that up front. You can give me money, though, if you want. I won't say no. Very nice. Um, if you enjoyed this uh, episode, this uh, if you enjoy our podcast, check out our other podcasts. Um on tapsradio.org we have intermission our audio drama our backstage audio drama podcast i know all the words mm-hmm. um <laughs> we have freddy goes to a podcast uh which is another book podcast if you like this one it's another book one where three grown men read the freddy the pig book series uh from 100 to 75 years ago um there's pokemon united pokemon, pokemon rollout. rollout thank you michael what is what is pokemon rollout it is the pokemon tabletop united actual play rpg podcast thank you i threw it to you because i was clearly not going to get all of those words or even most um <laughs> any other podcasts i should mention michael uh that's good sure I mean, there's others, but, like, if you like these, you'll probably find those, and, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, maybe I should have, like, pulled up the script for this. Uh, send us your homework. Um, we yeah. won't do it well, but we will do it, and if you turn it in, we will laugh as you get hauled off to play plagiarism jail. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, mainly join us next time for our discussion of the actual text of Gargantuan Panagruel by Francois Rabelais. And until then, remember, it's our party and we'll cry if the Counter-Reformation makes us and also the Spanish Inquisition <laughs> tries to cut off our toes. Bye! Yeah, it might. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.